When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Dalance. In conversations about polarized political issues, phrases like it's not about race, it's about class have become the perfect way to induce a stalemate. It seems as though the traditional materialist critique of inequality has been supplanted by a fast-evolving set of reflections of group identity. Mainstream politics makes fast and loose assumptions about the relationship between class and identity and between economic conditions and culture. These assumptions are arguably a key contributor to the culture wars. In The Identity Myth, David Swift covers the four different kinds of identity most susceptible to the rhetorical and cultural manipulation – class, race, sex and age. He considers how the boundaries of identities are policed and how diverse divisions of the same identity can be deployed to different ends. Ultimately, it is not that identities are simply more complex than they appear, but that there are more important commonalities. David Swift is a historian and writer who specializes in the history and contemporary politics of the British left. He is the author of A Left for Itself, and he writes about the state of the left for The Times, The Fabian Review, and The Critic, among others. I'm very happy that David joins me now to discuss the identity myth. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome. David, I normally try to conceal my first question, which is essentially for the guests to introduce themselves to do my job for me. With you, I think it's going to be very ad hominem to start with, because on the cover of your book, we have four blocks, class, race, sex, and age. So maybe I'll ask you to define yourself by those parameters, given that these are the questions we're going to be addressing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, very good point. Yeah. So in terms of, I mean, class is an interesting word, isn't it? I mean, I definitely consider myself middle class. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think that's really in dispute. In terms of uh, race, I'd say, um, well, again, I mean, race doesn't really exist, does it? So I think maybe ethnicity is a technique. I know it's on the front of my book, but I think I prefer to say mm-hmm. ethnically uh, and white, white British. Right. Um, I suppose actually like a lot of people from Liverpool where I'm from, um, I've got a sort of Irish Catholic backgrounds, grandparents, mm-hmm. great-grandparents were Irish, but I definitely wouldn't consider myself white Irish, you know, on the census form. Yeah, I, I suppose gender on male. Uh, was it sex or gender? I forgot. I forgot. I'm look at it now. We'll get to this. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, sex on male. And, uh, yeah, in terms of youth or generation, this is an interesting one. So I'm currently 34 years old, but I, don't, I wouldn't yeah. like to put myself into a kind of generation, right, because I think, as is argued in the book, Often these, this, you know, this kind of idea of millennials or Gen Zers or whatever is a load of nonsense in some cases. You know, it's not really based on any 
uh, you know, real criteria. Okay, well, so far I'm getting evasive out of this first answer, <laughs> but I guess At there's least. reason to all of this. So just, just to introduce listeners to what happens in the book, we've already pointed to class, race, sex, and age as the four categories of identity or things that contribute to constructions of identity that you try to tackle and dispute to a certain extent in, in the book. Mm-hmm. And I think this book is a little bit unusual for the kind of material that we deal on the network with usually in as much as you take a whole bunch of perspectives and bring them together to try to define a problem without necessarily getting too much into any of the details. I wanted to ask you why you wrote the book and who it is for and why you think the arguments that we're going to get into need to be brought together and and for what reason. So, I mean, the reason I wrote the book is that in, across these different kinds of identity categories, like class and race, etc., uh, obviously, the discussion of these issues is becoming more and more prominent. And I also think that the kinds of material issues which affect class, race, gender, generation, etc., are, again, becoming more pressing and more prominent uh, today. But I think very often in sort of discussion of these identities, be it in academia, in the mainstream media, uh, from businesses and politicians of both left and right, Increasingly, there's this focus on a sort of political cultural identity, mm-hmm. which only certain groups have or which can be imposed on them, uh, which is increasingly not only, I think, uh, divorced from the actual material conditions of the group itself, but I think can be increasingly used and misused for all kinds of purposes, right? Be it to sell cans of Pepsi or, you know, to, to win general elections or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. advance careers and secure research funding. And so that's what really made me or motivated me to write the book, right? To, to look at how this works according to different forms of identity and examine the discrepancy, if there is this discrepancy between the political, cultural assumptions about certain groups and the you know, uh, material realities. If you like. In terms of who it's for and, and why I think why I'm doing it and, and putting it together in, in this mm-hmm. way is I think some of the kinds of arguments you might see some of the kinds of arguments you might see are sometimes heard on the right from people on the right um, who say, oh, you know, never mind, bloody identity politics, etc." And that's certainly not what I'm trying to do. Uh, and I think this sort of this more left wing critique of identity politics, uh, you know, needs to happen and needs a voice. But also, I think I'm, I'm departing from other more traditional old school left, maybe even like Marxist inspired. Mm-hmm. Uh, critiques of identity politics, which really focus on class, I think, sometimes to the exclusion of other important yeah. intersections and material realities. So I really think that there's a room for a book like this, which is based on academic research, some of my own and, and mostly of other scholars, but is written in a more accessible language you know, for your average non-academic reader mm. who's interested in nonfiction. And yeah, it is not aimed actually just at an academic audience, but it is aimed at a more general reader who might be interested in these, in these things. And I think also, yeah, I'm trying as hard as I can to not be too particularly partisan one way or the other. You know, so I look at sort of right-wing politicians and left-wing politicians. I look at different kinds of journalists. And yeah, I think it, there's, a, there's a, I think there's a need for many people, um, such as myself, if you like, who are sort of, you know, liberal left mm. socialist types. To, to read this kind of thing, which can, you know, interrogate, maybe hopefully anyway, interrogate some of our assumptions around identity. Yeah, and I think you go quite far in making that point and, and trying to 
explain some of the trade-offs. I'll tell you the thing that came to mind just as I was reading a book and something I've been preoccupied with recently. In many conversations that I've had over the last couple of years, usually conversations with people who are critical of the left but, but pertain to the left in one way or another, there's this kind of phrase that, that pops up in various, various different forms. The phrase is, oh, it's not race, it's class. It's not sexuality or gender, it's class. And this kind of almost started feeling like a deflection of a certain type of materialist argument from one category of consideration into another. And the more I started thinking about this, I realized that this is, this is almost a kind of a hollow hollow deflection, and it is indeed, as you as you already intimated, a kind of deflection that the political right quite often uses to, to completely dissolve any conversation of any, any problem. So, you know, if we're talking about trans rights, quite quickly someone is going to be say, saying, oh, but this completely ignores the conversation about the working class, and therein the conversation ends. And I guess what your book is trying to do and I really admire the effort, given how, how difficult it has really quickly becomes, is to go and tackle all these different markets of identity, one after another, and I guess to try to play them off the kind of material interests of the categories that you that you define. Yeah, yeah, no, exa- exactly. The idea that, you know, oh, it's not race, it's class, or it's not sexuality, it's class. Obviously, these things are inextricably linked, right? So, mm. you know... Um, if you are, say, a, a poor black person, then obviously you're more likely to be exposed to the kinds of negative things that black people can be exposed to in Britain or the US than somebody who's obviously, you know, very rich and well-to-do. Likewise, you know, talking about trans rights and violence against trans people, the overwhelming amount of violence committed against trans people is committed against trans sex workers, and in particular yeah. it happens in South America and Brazil for some reason that I'm not aware of, really. So actually, if you're a trans person, your likelihood of being subject to it, to attack and intimidation and all the rest of it is massively linked to class, obviously. Yeah. So, so these things are inextricably linked. And definitely what, what I'm what I'm not trying to do is say, oh, actually, you know, it's it's all about just wealth and income. No, of course not. Mm. Um, but what I'm trying to do, I mean, you know, the, the famous case which uh, created the idea of intersectionality, you know, I think General Motors in Detroit in the late yeah. 60s, uh, and you know, in this case, you have, and, and this is a brilliant example of the material intersections of, say, class and race and gender. Whereby, if you're uh, black, you can't work in the office, and if you're uh, a woman, you can't work on the shop floor, right, in the engineering bit. So, therefore, if you're a black woman, you can't work anywhere, right? And that brilliantly shows how it's not about identity; it's about the literal biological fact of being a black woman means you can't get a job there. Now, people then couldn't say to the, you know, off manager at General Motors, oh, I may look black, but I actually identify with white concepts such as accurate timekeeping and the nuclear family. Mm. So, you know, fix me a desk, honky. You know? but <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm talking about, right? So we've gone from a consideration of, okay, what is the material reality of that person, right? How are they discriminated against? How do they suffer in different ways based on indelible things about them? Two, this idea that, you know, we're focusing on this idea of black identity which is about stuff like not caring so much about timekeeping, you know, not yeah. being too keen on objective truth and reality. I mean, you know, this is at the more egregious end of the spectrum, but you know, this was we do see this kind of stuff published by fairly respectable institutions. Uh, you might mm. remember from last year, the Smithsonian Museum published this thing on white characteristics, which included stuff like you know punctuality and uh, objective truth and stuff like this. Yeah. 
that this is the kind of stuff that you expect in right-wing memes, and it suddenly turns up in, in kind of liberal institutions as though as though it was somehow yeah, an exactly. acknowledged the truth. Yeah. And you think how is that how is that helping anyone, right? So and you got to think so. Therefore, what's the putting? When where does it come from? Like, what's driving mm. this desire to you know we set out this sort of black identity and white identity, you know? And, and so this is a lot what the book's about. So you, you just described this kind of endless trade-offs in which we, we we're supposed to be contending. Given that that your your book is driven by this intersectional analysis, even the word intersectionality doesn't really appear so much in the book. And I want to take us a tiny bit away from 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 this this kind of consideration because I I kind of put it to you that you still more interested in class than in anything else. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because out of all the identity markers that we have considered so far, it's class that seems to me, at least, to be in the greatest amount of crisis. So I just want to park this question of kind of where where we end up overall, because that's the kind of political project that I think we need to unpack a little bit in the course of a conversation. But I want us to, to get to a conversation about class, so at that point at which we have agreed, oh, it's not necessarily about race, it's not about gender, it's about class, we find already a dead end. I was struck in particular about how in trying to define classes, particularly the working classes, you quite often resorted to this kind of negation technique, like you define the working class almost through a set of observation of what the working class isn't. Well, where are we of class? Why is this such a taboo? Yeah, I think, I mean, a few reasons. I think on the one hand, you have the reality of economic changes and changes to uh, the kinds of jobs that people do, uh, etc. Changes to the ownership of property, you know, massive inflation, property prices and housing and all the rest of it. And uh, changes to how, how actually age is, you know, the biggest thing about property ownership rather than traditional concepts of cash. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, we've got the shifting uh, economics of the past couple of decades which has really disrupted so much of our uh, you know traditional understanding of class and quite appropriately too um, but then i'd say also aside from the very serious and important and interesting fact that the whole sort of economic basis of class from say the 19th or 20th century is mm-hmm. completely slipping away we also have the idea that oh if you're talking about class you're talking about this you know a, a sort of racialized and not only racialized, but also I think like a sort of culturally specific sense of the quote yeah. white work. I mean, I think for various reasons, the left over the past few decades has, has been talking less about class. And I think in some ways, you know, that's completely reasonable. But I think especially since people like Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson, Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, since they have started talking about class, um, I think the left has, this has created this awkward thing on the left then, because if you are then a left winger who, makes arguments which might seem in any way similar to what, you know, uh, Tucker Carlson or Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson saying, then obviously that's very difficult, right? So that makes it much more awkward if you're on the left, because if you're on the left and you want to talk about class, perhaps it does seem as though you're doing it in the kind of, you know, racialized, essentialized uh, way that, say, right-wing politicians increasingly invoke class, which, of course, is devoid of nuance and is absolutely, so, you know, this is what the homogenous block of the working class is. So I think that's a problem as well, actually. I think that's a problem that, you know, if you want to talk about class from the left, you've got to be very careful to not sound as though you're homogenizing people and stuff. And I think one of the reasons why it's so important is that this is something that's unchanging, right? So right now, for example, in in, in 
the UK certainly and in the US as well and other countries where you have this great generation or increasing the uh, increasingly generational disparity of wealth whereby younger people increasingly can't afford to buy houses and so on and so forth. Lots of old people who were not particularly well off when they were able to buy their house decades ago mm-hmm. are now simply by, you know, still owning the house, have all kinds of property wealth. So increasingly, I think people want to talk more about generation rather than class, right? Whether it be yeah. in terms of determining how people vote or how they make sense of the world, how they identify together, or even actually about sort of class in the sense to say, you know, our traditional understanding is, is no longer good. It's actually about, you know, home ownership and student debt and stuff like that. And I think on the one, to some extent, that trend is powered by the changing economic realities. However, I can't help but think that to some extent it's powered by a desire to to just get away from the awkward fact that a lot of people who we would traditionally consider to be working class seem to be moving towards the right politically. And I don't think the left really wants to talk about that. And I think sometimes an easy way around that really is to say, ah, you know, a lot of these so-called working class people, you know, newly voting conservative or Republican, very often they own their own home, you know, and actually they don't have any student debt to pay down. So actually, isn't this, you know, a master's graduate paying a ridiculous rent in Brooklyn or London or wherever, you know, paying off a student loan as well? Isn't that person, you know, the real working class now? And you think, well, not really. In many cases, a lot of time when their grandparents die and their parents die, a lot of these penniless 30, 40 something, you know, postgraduates uh, are going to inherit a great deal, actually. And, you know, this kind of uh, familial wealth, which is conti- amassed over, yeah. you know, generations, is going to continue to amass, actually. It's just that people are living longer, which is making it seem more generational and about class. But I think for, for all these kinds of reasons, I think there is maybe uh, either an awkwardness on the left talking about class and maybe a, a failure to see how much. Uh, it is still at the bottom or at the root of so many of these other identity uh, divisions and disputes. I think this is going to be one of the most important takeaways from the book. And I think it's also something that I see in a lot of discourse in the kind of post-left circles that that, that I hang out with. We we seem to have driven ourselves into this completely dead-end or painted ourselves in the corner. I'm, I'm, I'm mixing mixing very simple metaphors here. This whole conceptualization of the university-trained cognitive worker, quite often actually an academic or an artist, mm. with this is this is the spheres in which I operate, as somehow the working class, as pertaining of the working class, and therefore being able to represent the working classes, and therefore wanting to be the beneficiary of any working class adjacent politics is incredibly troubling. And one of the things that I think it does that you do observe in your book, this kind of complete miscategorization of what is the middle class cognitively at the very least, is the papering over of the fact that classes are defined by contrasts and by resentment. And this is something, you know, a bit of Marxist analysis that we, I think, really need to get back to. So one of the things that really came to mind as I was reading your book is that the kind of people that you and me might be affiliated with, the middle classes that might make some pretensions to leftist politics and one or another, actually paper over the fact that we have to despise the working classes because this is how we define ourselves. And I, I use despise in you know in very very inverted commas mm. now, but but I'm not sure whether. Um, a Marxist would necessarily need those inverted commas. Mm. So 
maybe we could dwell a little bit into on the tension that's both cultural and material between those classes and and maybe try to find some kind of sympathy for the politics of the middle classes. Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? You might remember if, uh, in England a few years ago, MP Emily Formbury at the time, I think Shadow mm-hmm. Home Secretary, and she was campaigning by election down in Kent, and she tweeted this photo of uh, a house bedecked in England, uh, you know, national flags, right? For the England, I think it was doing the World Cup or, or European Football Championship. So mm. the house was bedecked in England flags, and she just <laughs> the caption was simply, you know, uh, seen in in Rochester or something like that. That's all she said, I think, stuff like that. So this is a, this is a Labour politician, and I think one of the other pickant pickant ideas was that there was a white van, a, you know, a working class. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, the white van. Exactly. It's insignia of a working class livelihood in the in the van and. Indeed, indeed. Now, uh, and obviously, I think, and, and incredibly stupid, terrible thing to tweet. I mean, who thinks, oh, I, you know, I'm a Labour front bench politician with thousands, oh, I'll just point this and no one's going to, you know. And it's one of those things whereby, where it's particularly damaging for the left, I think, because it seems to not just malevolent actors don't like the left, but also maybe shifting people who might still vote Labour think, oh, it's the mask has slipped, you know, this is what they really think of us. You know, it's one of these moments that we've seen in uh, sort of Western politics over the past couple of decades. Another one of them was bigger to gate back in 2010 when Gordon Brown, uh, the then Prime Minister Gordon mm-hmm. Brown, on a hot mic after he'd been talking to someone about immigration, said, oh, she's this terrible, bigoted woman. And again, irrespective of whatever you think of the woman's views, you know, she was just not I wouldn't necessarily say bigoted, but certainly you know, anti-immigration, I'd say. Mm. But anyway, what do you think of their views? It's almost like the, the mask has slipped. This is what they really think of us kind of thing. So Emily Formbury uh, resigned or was fired from Ed Miliband's shadow cabinet and Ed Miliband issued this groveling apology and stuff. But then it gets, this is why I'm bringing this up. So he was asked, you know, what do you think when you see an England flag? And then he said, he just paused a bit and went like, proud or something and i remember thinking at the time because as i guess i was with with form breeze behavior and not so much obviously not shocked that that's how she thinks but shocked that she would do it and, and post it and all those but of course i was thinking to myself you know i am i'm no more likely to fly the cross of saint george during a football tournament than i am to have i don't know what to say you know a burning cross on my lord something or even just a cross oh, you know, we, we, we went to extremes very quickly but, but this, this is what i'm saying there's just no way i would do such a thing right and no and hardly anyone i know would do so and this is the thing right would hardly anyone in the parliamentary labor party or indeed anyone working in left-wing magazines or think tanks or how many academics would would ha- would do something like this? And again, I think this might be a particularly English thing as well, right? So obviously, in someone like America or France, it's, it's less problematic. Uh, I mean, I was just mm. recently looking at uh, Jean Luc Mélenchon's uh, campaigning attire and stuff. I don't know if you've seen it, but he's always got this uh, uh, tricolor sash on, you know. And this yeah. is a uh, you know the, the hard left candidate, by the way. So obviously, it's, it's not a problem in some countries, but you know, for for your English or British left wing middle class academic, journalist, activist, etc. the idea that you would, you know, be seen dead with the national... I mean, you look at the, the criticism that Keir Starmer gets now, you know, when he does his... He deliberately does his conferences, uh, photo ops, etc. with Union Jack flags behind him, gets attacked online by, you know, certain kind of leftists. But, of course, it's not as though Keir Starmer would necessarily... You know, it's not as though he... You can imagine Keir Starmer, like, getting the barbecue out and a few beers and an England flag hanging. I can't imagine that, no. 
I mean, he, he, is, is a... he is being investigated by the police now precisely oh, for, yeah. he, for drinking beer during the pandemic. Beer, exactly. But that's my, but my yeah. beer type. I can definitely imagine having a beer. Yeah, barbecue yeah. Or, or curry as it turns out, absolutely, but not an England flag, at least not spontaneously. This is a super interesting moment because we, we, we're talking about symbolism. You know, the idea that the left would somehow find it dirty, that, that the working classes could could be invested in patriotism. That's somehow unimaginable, unimaginable. And I think that is papering over this whole com- lack of comprehension for the fact that voters, different classes, different identity characteristics might actually hold different political views. So Emily Fonbury might have thought working class Nazi thug. This is kind of vaguely what she might have mm. meant by that. Gordon Brown fed bigoted anti-immigration woman. But the, the amount of contempt that these positions betray for the fact that someone might disagree with a leftist politics, the, the one only righteous politics. Um, I've had so many conversations with leftist friends over the issue of Brexit, for instance, where mm. the very idea that someone who was university educated and sort of inhabiting the art world or journalistic spheres could possibly be pro-Brexit, that was just anathema. What is the idea of the working class that's acceptable to to the politically engaged classes, and and why why is that really politically useless? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say a couple of things. I'd say so. There was this moment around 2016 with obviously Brexit and Trump, etc., when briefly I think there was more of a space uh, in academia, in in, in regular left wing media, and even online on social media for more of this kind of, okay, can we talk a bit more about class now? And then very soon after you had the sort of backlash, which was, oh, actually, I think you'll find that Trump voters were better off on average than, you know, and actually, I think mm. you'll find it was the middle classes of the home counties who caused Brexit, you know. Now, as I go into in the book, there, there's all kinds of material arguments there about, you know, uh, yeah, the material background of Trump voters, best Clinton voters and Brexit voters, whatever. So I'm not here to talk about that now. But the point was that they couldn't even consider it, you know, so quickly did this backlash come. We couldn't even have a brief period of, oh, actually, you know, let's let's talk about like working class attitudes to immigration. We're not saying, okay, one thing or the other, but let's talk. No, actually, is how dare you say working class people are more against immigration? That's classist. Yeah. You know? So quickly that kind of backlash came. And I think, it, I mean, it's false. And I think I talk about in the book, you know, there's what I talk about in the book is the difference between uh, authentocrats, which is a phrase I borrow from mm-hmm. Joe Kennedy, and exonerators, which is one I've made up of myself. And the authentic rat argument, and this was put forward by Joe Kennedy a couple of years after Brexit, Trump, etc. And he was saying exactly this. He was saying, oh, actually, it's patronizing to think that working class people are more skeptical of immigration or, you know, postmodernist thought or, uh, you know, mm. the latest uh, food trends from the continent or something. I, I think you'll find, you know, and okay. <laughs> there's something there, right? And it see there's something interesting there, which is okay, yeah, we should have more nuance and understanding of these things, which of course I'm trying to talk about in the book. But fundamentally is this massive overcorrection, uh, which is so politically ineffective. And it's doing it, I think, simply because they can't stand the idea that people whom they are meant to respect and put on a pedestal and meant to be fighting for, you know, the quote-unquote working class, they can't accept that they might have ideas about limiting immigration because limiting immigration 
is not seen as legitimate political aim in the same way that raising or cutting taxes or spending is. It's seen as bigoted. It's seen as literal race, li- literal racism, literally, you know, literal fascism. Uh, and this is, I think, is absolutely mad because, um, you know, I, for example, would like to go and work in the United States or Australia or wherever, you know, but I accept that they have the right, you know, to have an immigration policy, whether to take me mm. in or not, you know. Uh, and obviously, okay, I completely understand. You, you why do realise that, that this makes you an, a, a member of the alt right. Essentially, that statement alone is enough. <laughs> the idea that sov- you know, migration sovereignty oh. of a country could could be held up as an ideal is, is already in many well, 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 many well, academic that's, circles that's, completely taboo. I would indeed, yeah. And I should say personally, I don't care. <laughs> it's like I, it's like my personal views. You know what I mean? So I, you know, I don't live in the UK now. Um, nearly all of my friends are immigrants. And by that, I don't mean, you know, I'm one of these people, oh, my friends are immigrants. No, I mean, nearly all of my friends uh, from, from the UK, from Liverpool, from university, etc., live outside of the UK, are immigrants somewhere else, as oh. am I. You know, my wife is an immigrant, etc. But, you know, and very, very typical of my sort of background and class and a generation, all the rest of it, in that I've lived and worked all over the world, etc. So for me personally, it's not as though I personally uh, am obsessed with borders and stuff like this. But bloody no. hell, most people are. You know, this is this, this <laughs> the whole thing that we are. You know, if you are, uh, you know, uh, academics and people who are very interested in politics and people who are. Uh, I don't know, engaged with literature, shall we say, and stuff like that, who read lots of mm. books. We are unusual people and we need to appreciate how unusual we are. And again, just to, just to finish this point, it's really important that we don't think that these kinds of views around, say, just regulating immigration, say, not necessarily limiting it, but just regulating it, right, not having open mm. borders, is a particularly like a white thing or even like an old thing. And of course, black, Asian people, all different ethnicities of people have support for regulated immigration, both of their own countries that they live in and of other countries to which they might like to emigrate one day. You know, it, yeah. it's not a, uh, it's certainly not a um, specific to a, a certain kind of person. So, yeah, this is the idea. I think it's very important for those of us on the left to appreciate how unusual we can be on certain positions. And that's not to endorse those alternative positions necessarily. It's just, yeah, to say, look, all different kinds of people hold these positions. If we don't like them, how are we going to persuade them to think otherwise? But in order to even start with that, we need to accept that they hold these positions in the first place. Well, that, that's the very depressing point that your book, I think, makes through and through. This, 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 the left's assumption or the, the liberal consensus that certain positions are acceptable and these are the only ways that we imagine the electorate can be conceptualized and constituted. But maybe the last question I have to do with class, um, even though this is a topic I have a feeling we could talk for, for quite and quite a lot longer. We you you write you write the book from a perspective, or rather with the experience of having seen a whole bunch of years and electoral successes with the working classes, however we have just defined them, for a whole bunch of politically right programs, whether it's Trump, whether it's maybe the Conservative Party in the UK. And of course, we've seen um, near victory in France for Marine Le Pen. So if we were to take kind of a a flight over the the electoral contract between the working classes and those different representation of the right, what is happening there that might be instructive and useful for the left to absorb as a lesson i mean interestingly i suppose it shows that you don't necessarily i think it shows that you don't necessarily have to 
uh, actually be offering much of you know material benefits to win people's votes. Mm. Although definitely, I'm not suggesting the left should do that. Right, I think people so often are fed up. You know, especially if you've been traditionally voting Labour or Democratic and things aren't getting better for you, or you know you voted for the Socialist Party or uh, another party in France and things aren't getting better for you, then maybe why not just try something else out of desperation? So I think definitely the left has to offer concrete material stuff, especially if, as is, I think is going to be the case, you know, Boris Johnson's uh, plans of levelling up the UK and making the UK a more fairer society economy. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we're going to see any, you know, <laughs> Uh, serious changes there. So I think at the next general election, you're going to have a lot of very angry, uh, depressed people who have maybe voted for Brexit, hoping that might change something. And then maybe a voted Conservative, or possibly for the first time in their life, maybe hoping that might change something. Why not? Because I've had Labour MP for decades. Let's yeah. go with the Tory. And I think that a lot of these people are going to find that actually nothing's got better since Brexit or, or since they elected Boris Johnson. In fact, considering you know, inflation and the cost of living crisis, things have gotten a lot worse. So I definitely think you're going to have a lot of angry people there, a lot of dis, dis, you know, depressed people. The, the real problem is that they just won't vote, uh, a lot of these people. You know, a lot of people voted for the first time at the Brexit referendum, um, and many of them might not vote again since. You know? um, mm. And I think sometimes it's, sorry to just come back to what we were talking about before, but I think okay. already I can hear certain voices on the left saying, you know, why do we privilege certain kinds of voters? You know, okay, so these may be more low information uh, voters, less likely to turn out, who did turn out for Brexit. Why do we care so much about them? You know, these red wall seats that went uh, Tory for the first time, why do we care so much about them? What about so many other like voters, like young people and immigrants and stuff in the South, and, you know, postgraduates who can't pay off the student debt? These are all legitimate, valid people. Why don't we listen to them? And I think one reason is that a lot of these people already vote, you know, or, and, and, and very often they already vote for the left and their allegiance isn't really being contested right now. Whereas, you know, some of those former people, so-called, you know, white working class and all the rest of a lot of these people, either they do not vote or their allegiance is uh, absolutely, you know, is still in the balance and could go one way or the other. So I think one thing that the success of the of right, right-wing right politicians, be it Le Pen, Farage, Trump, etc., has had in work, winning over work-class support is that very often, I suppose, it shows that if you get the rhetoric and the language and the culture right, you don't actually have to have much literal material uh, mm promises if you like or policies or tangible stuff to offer them if you can get all that right but of course i think that would be a huge mistake for the left i mean the left definitely has to get the language and the culture and the rhetoric right but it also has to have some very tangible meaningful things like, you know vote for us and we'll give you this because as i say i think there's going to be a lot of disillusioned voters over the next few years yeah and i think that's where you the geographical spread of your interests and your your studies in the book comes in quite handy because i i have a feeling that one could quite easily demonstrate that in the us for instance this kind of disenchantment with the material non delivery is already beginning to be a problem you know after after the biden victory we were a couple of years in and it's already looking quite shaky but I think I think we are going to have to keep on moving the, on the blocks on your on your cover, and we're going to have to move a little bit towards race. We're moving into a territory where there is no lack of political motivations. People are motivated to get out and vote and to organise. We have certainly seen with the focus and the rise of Black Lives Matter and and, and the repercussions of George Floyd's murder around the world. We have seen. I think a rise in discourse around race that that 
in the street rather than academic discourse and in journalism that has not been present for quite quite a while and at the risk of spoiling you know spoiling your book to to for readers you you argue that this is not necessarily the kind of godsend for the left that one would imagine that that to kind of go with the knee jerk of you know black equals left is is, mm-hmm. is a very very big mistake yeah i mean i think as so much of what's happened over the past year or so i think it's been a very american centric and even though obviously it's spread around the world and you have all kinds of you know blm protests everywhere again i think that they're very much using the rhetoric and the uh, the imagery of 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 us uh, race relations discourse and so on and i think that is not very helpful for all the you know various scenarios which are nothing like the us so mm. if we're talking about race in the planet then we need to obviously look at not just the global perspective but a, a, how it functions uh, in different ways in different contexts, right? So, you know, race in, say, uh, South Africa or, say, you know, a mostly black country like Mozambique uh, or somebody else somewhere else like Australia, for example. These are completely different contexts. Brazil, you know, uh, India, these are, you know, countries with hundreds and hundreds of millions of people of diverse um, ethnicities and backgrounds. And the sort of one-size-fits-all, literally black and white, attitude to race which i think we see coming from america uh, is is absolutely not appropriate really for anywhere apart from america and i also think that um, and we are and we're seeing this in the us already at the last election um and it's only going to become more uh, problematic for the left i think in the future is that large numbers of so-called people of color are moving away from their traditional left-wing you know democratic mm-hmm. uh, allegiances and moving towards the right i think the only ethnic group that Trump didn't improve his vote share amongst uh, between 2016 and 2020 was white people. You know, I think everyone else like Native Americans, uh, Asian and Pacific Island, uh, Islanders in particular, Hispanics in particular, even black people, he improved a few percentage points. There's a, a journalist in the UK, uh, Tamima Oluwale, uh, oh. who has uh, wrote an article recently in which he borrowed, shall I generously say, a lot from my book. I have noticed this. Of, I have I have a link to his article <laughs> in on my notes. I was going to ask yeah. you about the very thing. Well, indeed, yeah, yeah. It's because he, he certainly mentions a fair few things that I mentioned in the book. Mm. Uh, and you know, you know, a, a quick reference would have been nice, but whatever. Anyway, so and he's talking about the increasing, you know, if we look at the religiosity of the UK, we look at the future, say, Christianity in the UK. Uh, it's it's you know but, I mean, dominated by by immigrants and especially immigrants f- from the continent of Africa. You know th- these th- these are really complicated issues, and so often on the left the idea is that there's this great crusade uh, in which you know all of the the so-called working class people, all of the women, all of the trans people, all of the gay people, all of the disabled people for some reason, you know, all of the we're all on one side in some mm. great crusade. And this is obviously complete nonsense and it's very dangerous thinking. And as uh, you know, Western societies get more become more demographically diverse over the next few decades, you know, sometimes some people on the left almost think, okay, we just need to wait. <laughs> we just need to wait. Demography is on <laughs> our side. I think it absolutely is not. And I think no. in the same way we've seen so much of the so-called, you know, what quote unquote white working class going over to the Republicans and Conservatives in the past few years and decades, 
wait until this happens with, you know, firstly, Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans and, you know, yeah, British Indians, as it's happening now, British uh, African people, uh, people from African background, and then eventually, uh, eventually African Americans. Sounds ridiculous, but, you know, it's happening mm. with white working class, eventually British Muslims and so, you know. So absolutely, we can see uh, increasingly diverse societies where, I mean, I've said this in my previous book as well, my, my biggest fear is that Britain and America ends up like Israel, where you have this tiny mm. marginalized left which is supported almost exclusively by you know, white people, Ashkenazi people, like the whites of Israel. Yeah. Uh, everyone's got at least a master's degree. You know? uh, we all live, <laughs> you know, we're all, you know, mostly young hipsters who live in big cities, and that's the left. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, it's I mean, the Israel, podcast you know? industrial complex is very happy in this scenario. <laughs> we can keep on having this conversation forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this, this is, this is my thing. I think demographics is definitely not uh, some kind of, of get out of jail free card for the left. And I think the left needs to actually take a long, hard look at the politics of different groups. Mm. And it just, you know, people like, say, AOC in the United States is completely unrepresentative of Hispanic, of young Hispanic women, yeah. even, you know. And yet, of course, she's held up as this is what young Hispanic women are like. And I think that's a big problem. Mm. You frame your argument about race and ethnicity through the lens of neocolonialism, which I, I guess most listeners will be able to, to figure out a little bit where, where we're talking about. But I'm interested in particular in how you perceive this neocolonial impulse that drives from you know, Franz Fanon and onwards in, in your analysis, how that can be applied to a very specific set of situations. So as I mentioned, the book does change geographic focus from one point to another. And in as much as we talked about the UK mostly when it came to class, the conversation about race really has to bounce a little bit further and it has to mm -hmm. be rooted in or against rather what was happening in the US. Particularly in the UK, though, I'm interested in how you perceive this neocolonial, post-colonial, whichever one of these terms we apply, how we how you see these attitudes playing out in the very kind of peculiar or very sui generis racial mix of the UK. And now I'm not going to try to explain to our non-UK listeners what it is that happens in the UK, but it is quite simply to say we are not the US. Yeah. How do you make useful the kind of international globalist material that you draw on into a very particular local political situation because i think that's what you are trying to do in the book you know we're not we're not trying to solve race relations globally this is in the end a book mm. that has applications in a very particular set of politics yeah so i'm trying to i think when i talk about sort of race relations in this sense in the book or maybe the intersection between like ethnicity and politics and identity and all the rest of it I talk about yeah, both the sort of macro global level and also within the UK and some other countries. I think one big issue is the on the macro global level, the shifting sort of power structures where obviously we've seen the rise of China and India, et cetera, and the relative decline of, of, of Western Europe and North America. I assume that's going to continue apace uh, over the next few decades. Already, it looks as though, I mean, it looks as though India was having a very bad pandemic for a couple of years and it looks as though it's going to mm. cost a lot of growth. Now, actually, it looks as though India is going to be pretty well placed over the next couple of years, uh, you know, for various reasons. And, you know, in the one point, however, four, 4 million people, 1.5 billion, sorry, however many people there are in India, their concepts of race is obviously completely different to how you know, we in the UK see Mm -hmm. And this is going to become a huge issue as obviously likes of India uh, and, and Brazil, for that matter, Indonesia, for example, uh, 
Turkey already is, is doing. As these countries improve in their or increase their geopolitical clout, that's obviously going to change how we understand race and discuss around race and, and the sort of white-centric or Eurocentric way it's often discussed. And then within particular countries, again, the sort of changing racial demographics of the UK, uh, absolutely, as people, you know, people's views change, of course, and it's not as though, say, if somebody has more conservative views on, say, LGBT issues or women's rights today, by no means will they in a few years. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at attitudes in general, of course, British mm. attitudes towards gay people were horrible in the 80s, you know, all kinds of polls saying people with HIV deserve it, you know, shouldn't get any sympathy and all, all, all you know, things, really incredible things that you wouldn't think had a majority or plurality of support 30 years ago. So just as, um, you know, attitudes to LGBT issues have shifted on a national level in the UK in 30 years, so too it can amongst individuals and particular groups and communities. Mm. But in the short term, then obviously, uh, you know, ethnic diversity and, and increased immigration from all over the world will affect, you know, attitudes towards religion, as I mentioned before, and LGBT people and all kinds of different stuff as well. And I think, yeah, the left isn't necessarily prepared for that. I think it just associates blackness and brownness with, with, with goodness and it associates goodness with being, you know, pro-climate, concerned about climate change and LGBT people and anti-nukes mm. and anti-royal family and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, I think it's in for a bit of a shock if it sort of re- if it relies on a you know, increasingly diverse country, I don't know, decreasing support for certain issues, yeah. shall we say? Well, I get, get that. That's the point at which the I think there's there's another formulation of the left's problem that you've just arrived at when it becomes really visible, and that's to do with with the fact that we can't just rely on any particular identity group to feel itself oppressed enough to be seeking the left as a political solution to its oppression. I mean, this is an age-old question, of course. I'm not proposing anything new here. But what doesn't, I think, get spoken enough about in the the conversation that we're trying to address now is the difference between marginalization and oppression. And I think that will probably become very clear when we move on to the the next category, which is sex or gender, depending on, on how we want to tackle it. And while it is quite clear that everyone can find examples of the oppression of black people and the oppression of working classes, these, mm-hmm. these exist within living memories. But in the way that we talked about certain aspects of the middle class experience and how we talk about gender and sex and, and experience of age and generations, there comes a point at which it's no longer that easy to point to examples of oppression. There's no longer a common enemy which is why I think we get to the point where we have kind of intra-group fights. I mean, this is it's almost a conservative talking point, what I'm regurgitating now, we're talking about oppression Olympics. But I think there comes a point at which we have to start looking at pretty much every one of the identity markers that you outlined through both the prisms of oppression and marginalization, quite simply because the groups that we are looking at have experiences of both to different degrees. How how do we deal with all these identities playing playing themselves against one another when we are still stuck in the paradigm where there is some benefit to be gained by everyone and anyone from presenting themselves as just that one percent more disadvantaged mm. than the previous group that had its focus? Now, without litigating any of this, which I guess we sort of are. How do we how do we 
cut this impulse away? How someone has to at some point give up their position at the leaderboard. And I'm I'm slightly pessimistic, I'm afraid. No, I mean, I think definitely you're not cynical. And I think this is, you're not being cynical at all when you say this is how this sort of thing actually works out. And, and just because mm-hmm. oppression Olympics is a right-wing turn, but talk, talk about, sorry, doesn't necessarily mean that this is not how people act. Like it's, it's almost mm-hmm. like top trumps. So I've got X, Y, and Z. I've got X, Y, Z, and, and a, a, B, and C too. So, ah, so therefore, you know, I think... And this is a real thing. This is especially people who are, say, middle class and white and heterosexual and all the rest of it. They think, oh, what can I be? And again, I think some of the, and I don't want to maybe anticipate stuff we're about to talk about, but certain things like the ba- the barrier for entry is so low, it's pretty easy. Mm. Now, race, okay, it's tough to change your race. And we've seen some people like Rachel DeLisle driven to it because, again, this distinction between the what in her mind the tremendous cultural kudos and clout of being black in her in her specific particular world yeah. and and the pressure there to you know not just be a white woman but that's fairly unusual but indeed if you had to again to, to actually be gay to be in a relationship with someone of the same sex if you're not gay it's a pretty big deal you know but to say that you're queer or to say, you know i'm asexual or i'm a bit kinky in the bedroom Anyone can do that, you know. What I mean, <laughs> you don't even have to do anything. You can be like a Laurie Penny, who is a, you know, British journalist and I think screenwriter. Or kind. So she says she's genderqueer and and all the rest of it. She is in a straight mon- monogamous mm. marriage with a man, right? a cisgender man, right? She's a cisgender. You know, what's queer about? There's nothing queer about a monogamous marriage between a man and a woman, right? So this is one thing. Oh, indeed, you can say. Oh, I, you know, I have, I have, I have autism, for example, or something like that. And, okay, sure. Indeed, you may well do. But this is, this is my point. It's sort of the, the yeah, that you have, people do have this, or certain people do anyway, have this compulsion, to almost like one-upmanship and to say, actually, just being yourself is enough. You know, it's just enough. And I completely take your point for a lot of mm. these people. It's almost like, you know, I used to have this space where it was me being talked about and now it was black people or gay people or whatever. And I want to be on me again. I think for also, I think for a lot of women, for a lot of white straight women, the past few years have been very tough because, yeah. you know, for white straight men like myself, you know, we don't get, it's like I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm privileged, I should be, oh, you know, making well, you're from you're from Liverpool, you always have that, <laughs> that oppression card. <laughs> oh, exactly. well, that's my thing, exactly, exactly. But yeah, and you know what, when, when, when we were putting together this book, <laughs> the idea for the book, you know, the publishers were saying, oh, I don't know, white straight man writing the book, <laughs> these kinds of things. And like my agent told one of the other she went, oh yeah, but he's from Liverpool, you know, so you can tend to be dead work at class <laughs> and then that's your thing, you know. Yeah. yeah, and it's terrible the way that's how it is, by the way, but unfortunately that's how it is. But anyway, um, so yeah, for a lot of middle-class straight cisgender white women, it's been a tough few years for them because mm. I'm sure that they do not feel particularly privileged. And indeed, you know, white middle-class yeah. straight women are not particularly privileged. They still have all kinds of problems, as we just see recently the Supreme Court abortion ruling and so many people saying, stop trying to say it particularly hurts black women or poor women or trans women yeah. or whatever. Just say it hurts women because actually white middle-class women are also going to suffer from this, just mm. they suffer from domestic violence and all the, all the other things that affect, you know, white middle-class heterosexual women. But I think a lot of them, they feel under pressure, right? Because they think it's no longer enough to be just a white, you know, you know it's no longer enough even to be a lesbian. You're a lesbian, okay, why aren't you trans? You know, that's it. So I think mm. for a lot of people, there is this pressure to this kind of identitarian one-upmanship. And how, but I think it will end though, because this again, this this is particular people in a particular kind of world. 
if you speak to people who have little to no interest in politics, who do not work in academia and media or, you know, certain very particular kinds of careers, they don't know a lot of this. They just don't know what's going on. Right. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that they're unaffected or unaware of the broader, you know, tr- social justice trends of the past few years. No, I think it would be hard not to be, at least because the way, you know, obviously corporations have very cynically taken up. But it's, it's like, you know, I know people from, you know, different kinds of backgrounds, different generations and ages and stuff like that. And, and they do not act or uh, behave or think or vote the way that, you know, black people or Muslims or LGBT people are meant to according to you know so the books i've read you know the sort of milieu that i'm, I'm, I'm part of think that they do if that makes sense mm. so what gives me hope and it's almost not to like you know, oh, go, you know, go on yeah there's, there's one, one good thing so far but you know you know george orwell if there is hope it lies in the proles kind of thing you know, i think <laughs> definitely if there is hope uh, it lies in the 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 increasingly diverse society that we're a part of and it's yeah. becoming i mean if you look at in the u.s now there's been so much pushback from Hispanic Americans about the use of Latinx, or I don't know if that's how it's meant to pronounce it, or Latinx. I think Latinx or is the, the correct, correct term, but I'm, I'm just as bewildered by it as, as you Well, are. indeed. And unfortunately, there are many uh, prominent uh, Hispanic, Latinx uh, journalists, politicians. There are left-wing Democratic Hispanic politicians, hmm. not AOC as far as I'm aware, but there are plenty of them saying, this is nonsense. <laughs> not only is it nonsense, not only do only 2% of Hispanic people uh, would ever consider using that term, actually it can be counterproductive. So we're having a pushback simply from the reality of the fact that loads of Hispanic Americans saying, what is this nonsense? Not in our name. Uh, if you look recently at the recall of the California, of the San Francisco school board, again, there's all kinds of complex stuff going on there. A lot of it also would be to do with you know, COVID and more ed- straightforward yeah. educational stuff. But of course, this is an extremely ethnically diverse, albeit probably not that ethnically diverse uh, community, mm-hmm. and you know, very extremely left wing. Of course, you know, not just democratic, but a particular kind of democratic, I assume, in San Francisco. And yeah, you know, they're saying no. You know, there's only so far we want you to go with, um, and we do want more parental oversight over exactly what our ch- children are being taught about identity and stuff. And I think this is, I think, just the reality of because. You know, so few gay people have this, you know, queer uh, identity in politics, which is somehow assumed that they nearly all do. You know, so few black people and Asian people or Muslim people have this kind of radical identity in politics that someone on the left assumed they do. So I think the simple reality of people's real lives and politics and all the rest of it will hopefully, I'm hoping, act as some kind of anchor or dead weight to stop this sort of identitarian thing because. Mm. Yeah, I, I just think I, I think as the, as the as the material realities which gave rise to this kind of stuff in the first place are shifting, and as uh, I mean, we're definitely going to see it in the UK over the next few years. You know, when you have a great disparity between, say, um, uh, Black Britons from an African background and Black Britons from a Caribbean background, I imagine the economic disparity yeah. between those two groups is just going to shift over the next few decades. When you have, as you will see, I mean, as we already do in the UK, when you have so many Black and Brown and uh, female people in the cabinet, you know, in the, at the head of the executive, uh, at mm-hmm. the top of companies, when, as you will do soon, you have trans people in the cabinet, you know, it's going to be increasingly hard to to maintain this idea that being black or brown or trans or whatever yeah. is this thing that certain kind of white person desperately wants to be. So to answer your question, I think that's how this thing could be maybe lessened or resolved in the long run. Okay. So you've just taken us into a, a hopeful direction. 
And that's to do with, you know, with time, with demographic changes. But I have a feeling in the last sections of your book, when you talk about age, about generations, I have a feeling that you don't really believe that Greta Thunberg is going to save us. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not too confident about that, actually. Yeah. Um, this is it. You know, when we talk about young people, obviously the rights, you can list the cliches, can't you? You know, oh, if they'd only saved and worked hard and didn't spend it on fripperies like avocado sandwiches and whatever, they could afford to deposit mm. them for a house or and of course, on the left, you have this idea that young people are all these, you know, left-wing uh, radicals who are going to save the planet. I mean, that's been, even if you look in the UK, you know, the, the the vast majority of homophobic hate crimes are committed by teenagers and twenty-year-olds. And okay, you might say that it's mm. a disproportionate amount of antisocial behaviour committed by teenagers and twenties anyway. But okay, you know, this is a big deal. Um, like, look at the world. You know, if you think of India again, you know, the world's second biggest country. And the BJP party is massively, I mean, it's popular in India anyway, because it's you know, formed mm-hmm. the government. It's particularly popular amongst young people. Even, um, you know, uh, bloody Marine Le Pen, you know, she has, I believe, far more support amongst young people than France than she does amongst over 65s. Uh, uh, Macron, yeah. again, Macron, it's reversed. Like his, his greatest support base is the, is the older people and the young people really don't like it. Now, again, I've seen this being written up as, Oh, young people are turning their back on Macron centrism. Yeah, fair enough. It makes sense. But why are so many young people voting for bloody Marine Le Pen? You know, that, why aren't we talking about that? Mm. So, yeah, again, this is the idea that you know, young people, millennials, Gen Zers, uh, again, are this sort of homogenous block which is either going to uh, you know save the world because of their activism and all the rest of it, or is actually just you know layabouts who uh, you know. Uh, snowflakes and all the rest of it. I think it's very similar. I think these are two sides of the same coin, actually. It's sort of essentializing of young people, which which is unwanted, basically. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, I had a counterpoint, but I realized as you were talking that this isn't really a counterpoint. But I was going to mention that the DSA, the Democratic Socialist of America, which could be, in principle, one of those organizations that, that is the future of the left, or at least a kind of you know, critical aspect of the left that that seems to have over the last 10 years, the average age of membership of the DSA has changed from over 60 to somewhere in its 20s, which is which is potentially a, a thing of beauty. However, I the same source in which I picked that gem up instructed me that one of the branches, one of the chapters of the DSA in Seattle, if I'm not wrong, has just decided to start spending a third of its income, a third of its dues, a third of its subscription fees, on paying racial reparations. So it's completely changed its its motto, its complete raison d'etre. It is now an anti-racist organization as opposed to a socialist worker-led organization. So I think these yeah. these these difficulties, these problems kind of wrap themselves round around one another. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens with this, uh, you know, the DSA, because again, Okay, anti-racist organization, but on whose behalf and for whom? Because okay, whilst there's plenty of black people who will completely endorse what they're doing, so you know, process. Eventually, I think the fact that the vast majority of African Americans uh, want nothing to do with that with that kind of thing, it's, surely that will eventually make them realize, hang on, isn't this just some kind of white identity It's a kind of cosplay, you know? All right, we're not actually donning the fake tan and, and, and curly hair of Rachel DeLiso. But isn't this some kind of weird, like, racial... Again, you, you saw, I mean, you may have seen during the George Floyd protests a couple of years ago, in some egregious instances, there were these young white people flogging themselves 
and, and, and oh. like licking the feet of black people. Oh God, I have a video that I am going to link in the episode notes that I think every white person needs to see. Like, you know, those people were clearly high on acid and, and doing, <laughs> you know, performing all of this entirely for themselves, you know, chanting Indeed, absolutely. through nothing but narcissism. It's heartbreaking. Indeed. I, I, for now, I think it is uh, feasible perhaps for these kinds of people to think oh, maybe your average black person approves of this and maybe we're getting closer mm. to them or we're, we're doing what they might like for this. I think eventually that will become unsustainable. They will no longer be able to think that they are somehow doing this for black people and it will become ever more apparent that they're doing it for themselves. So that's my sort of hopeful thing for the future. Yeah. Anyway. It, with, with this message, what, what practical steps does one take? And I'm interested in particular about what it is that you do. You're a journalist, you have an academic background, but, but I'm I'm interested in what it is that one might find as a recipe, as a kind of counter recipe to the political activism of your standard academic, intellectual, cognitive worker leftist. Because there's something that you you know you're performing an act. You 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 saturate a slightly broader audience that that an academic analysis of of the issues that you would take to, you that would have taken on. You're reaching a broader audience. You're saturating them with a lot of information that that's kind of quite quite it's quite quite a lot to take in, you know. And for someone who hasn't figured these things out that profoundly, it's it's quite it is a crushing message. It does essentially tell you you've you've got a lot of these things wrong and you're not that special. But that aside, what do we want to propose to the academic, to the scholar, to the analyst, the activists engaged in actually dealing with? the problems of identity politics. Yeah, I, I think, I mentioned this in the book, actually, I was, I was saying, you know, you can tell it sort of when it was written, because I'm saying Joe Biden seems to be, you know, hopefully can show us a way through, because obviously he was going to, like this old school New Deal, you know, Democrat, and he was saying, right, I'm going to focus on money and material stuff. And, you know, we had a good start, didn't he, with the, uh, you know, the, the coronavirus uh, stimulus bill. And then, of course, he did get the, the bipartisan finance bill passed, I believe, and obviously build back better store and so on. But, and, and obviously now we have the inflation all the rest of it and, and his own problems mm. there. But I think he had the right idea in that if you can mass, if you can turn on the taps of federal largesse, I think money in all kinds of places in academia, I think if the academic job market was much better as it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago, probably not great then, but better than it is now, then I think mm. so much of the hate and rancor, so much of identity politics, you simply wouldn't have seen. Because so many of these people would have had decent, well-paid jobs instead. And frankly, if you have a decent, well-paid job, it's oh. much harder. Not least because you don't have the time to be on the internet, on Twitter all the time. <laughs> but also, you have far less inclination to do so. Um, it, not just, obviously, from, from, in academia, but you know, in all kinds of places. If there were better, uh, more you know, sustainable, long-term, steady jobs that, did, that were good for people's self-esteem on the left and the right, People being underemployed without the kind of job or income or status they commensurate with their education or what they think they should have, either because of their education or because of their, you know, white skin or whatever it is, you know, on the left or the right, this idea that their status is under attack, so I'm going to take the internet and abuse people online. I think that with money and resources, so much of this stuff would be less potent than it is now, I think. Again, that's obviously the most difficult thing in the world, isn't it, to find money for this? But I think, you know, better funded uh, mental health services, more jobs in academia and politics, things like rent control, stuff like that, massive increase in housing supply. You know, I think material changes 
although they will be so hard to achieve, can actually show, can hopefully maybe get us away out of this identitarian impasse. And what I would say to the, to the left-wing academic and activist, etc., is you, you've got to get into power and actually try and change things. I remember um, a sort of an acquaintance of mine who I saw at a wedding just before in March 2020, just before the lockdown began. And, uh, you know, he was an NHS doctor here in the UK. He was a, you know, former, probably current hipster, you know, former ketamine addict in his 20s. Well, not addict in his 20s. I know, when he was in his <laughs> 20s, he used to love clubbing and ketamine and MDMA. Uh, and, you know, uh, NHS doctor, lives in London, hipster, you know, skinny. This is the perfect Corbyn. You know, there's a homo Corbyn yeah. kind of guy. You can't think of a more typical <laughs> modern Labour activist and voter. And even he was really moaning at me, because this is only four months after the 2019 election when Labour you know, has this yeah. terrible defeat. Even he was moaning at me about Corbyn's attitude towards the Russian poisoning. Uh, and is you know, he was saying to me, you know, if this guy wants to change our foreign policy and make us maybe more skeptical of, say, you know, the US and NATO, whatever, you've got to get into power first. So why not just say, yes, the Russians did it? Why not at the Senate just sing gustily along to the national change? We point. know you don't support it. Gonna, you know, we're half, we're just pretend to try and like Donald Trump or and the This is what I'd say. So you've got to get into power somehow by hook or by crook, even if that does mean using the kinds of language or rhetoric that you might be a bit uncomfortable with or whatever. Get into power by hook or by crook, and then you can hopefully achieve things and achieve reforms which will bring about the sort of things that you want to see. Uh, hey, register to vote is the message, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, register to vote and vote. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> Thank you so much, David. Thank you. Thank you for the book. Cheers. Um, thank you for your time. Cheers. Thank you. Nice to see you. The Identity Myth, Why We Need to Embrace Our Differences to Beat Inequality by David Swift is published by Constable. I'm Pierre Valencia and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening and join us next time.